Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. Uh, Dr. Meharazin, just before we begin, I, um, I, I'd like to introduce you, but I'd also like to, um, we, we've kind of been gauging our, um, our speakers in, uh, in regards to some mentoring advice, right. kind of where they came from, what why they chose their field. So if you don't mind, um, I, you know, Dr. Mehrazin is uh, um, coming uh, to us from, you know, he completed his residency, at, and correct me if I'm wrong, it was University of Tennessee, yeah. fellowship at uh, Fox Chase, um, and now you're, uh, you know, assistant professor of urology at Mount Sinai in New York City. What, what drove you to urologic oncology? And, and um, it's with an interest in, in, you know, kind of... Right. Um, so... I, you know, going a little bit further back, I went to med school to become a neurosurgeon. My dad is a neurosurgeon. I was exposed to only neurosurgery. I mean, this is all I wanted to do. And um, it was like a fourth year July. I mean, fourth year medical school. I mean, I had my sub-I rotations all set up and we were just doing that filler one week gap for urology rotation. It was Monday morning. I went in the OR was an attending with two residents they were blasting a stone they were having a great time i mean they were just the environment was like i've never seen before in or especially in surgery okay. the next case was a trbt and then i remember inguinal orchiectomy and an open partial i mean that was one day i was like impressed with technology how much they covered um, from the stone to the bladder tumor orchiectomy and then the kidney mass um, in one day sure. and um, also they had a, you know, just immediate gratification. I mean, the stone was out, the tumor of the bladder was still resected, the testis tumor was out. I mean, it was just, usually you don't really see that in the surgical field. So the whole week was just like impressive for me. And that weekend I basically made up my mind that maybe I should do urology. And I remember that I sat out, I didn't match that year. I just went for uh, urology research one year I published some papers uh, with my mentor, who's still a very good friend of mine, mm-hmm. and I got into urology residency. Um, halfway through, uh, I was a PGY3, then I saw myself being more interested into more of a complicated or open cases. Like, I remember I was in PEDS, the metrophon of cases was impressive. I really enjoyed doing those diversions and then suspecting the RPND. So I, that was. Uh, I figured uh, in order uh, for me to continue, you know, I guess, research and also be able to do these big cases is for me to do a your oncology fellowship. Mm-hmm. I, that's, I applied for uh, five uh, pos- uh, re- uh, fellowship positions and I interviewed the five and I went through my first choice, which was Fox Chase. And uh, um, you know, second year fellow over there, we were doing research and I started looking for jobs. I obviously wanted to continue to do uh, academics. I wanted to uh, produce papers and I saw mentor residents and also uh, be able to do these big cases. And you can typically do these cases at academic major centers who can support the patient postoperatively. And um, I started interviewing at cities that I felt like, you know, I have a, 
reason to be at. My sister's been in New York for all these years and I never thought I would end up in New York. And yeah. just things work out because they always do. And I ended up uh, coming to Mount Sinai Hospital. Yeah. And August is going to be six years here. Wow. Um, it's, yeah. it's, it's amazing to kind of hear how people, especially, um, you know, when you go to medical school in one state and you do training in another and how you end up in one place, I, I, I find it fascinating that right. people are able to experience different training styles across the country and kind of incorporate all a little bit of everything um, now into their own practice. Um, and uh, there are other people, I think Dr. Stifelman, who's next, he, he's been mainly a New Yorker. Um, right. And, you know, people people do it differently but and a lot of people at columbia are very similar like that but i think it's fascinating uh to see people kind of grow in uh, in different areas but well thank you um i won't keep you longer it's a perfect segue into um your talk we'll be talking about testicular cancer um diagnosis treatment of early stage testicular cancer focusing on the aua guidelines and again i'll i'll give it to you thank you for joining us thank you all right, so um, I picked this uh, topic uh, because I, as a resident, uh, testis cancer always seemed to be a little bit complicated, the staging and then the pre- uh, treatment uh, algorithm that you have to go through. And, um, you know, instead of, uh, I know you have had a couple of good talks and uh, about testis cancer, but I picked the guidelines because it's important to know. It's there for us to know it especially for uh, graduating chiefs who are going to be taking their written boards and then oral boards. I mean, you need to know all the guidelines. They will ask you questions. They're not hard to read. Their PDFs are online. And it's good for you to be familiar with these because that, this is where the test questions come from. So I wanted to basically summarize and go through the guideline one by one. Uh, so um, hopefully this will be a good review. And uh, if you need to access these, you can either go through my talk Again, or you can just go on the website, uh, AUA website. So I have no disclosures. Again, this is uh, based on the guidelines. These authors uh, spend a lot of time putting this together. So um, as urologists, uh, take take your, you know, spend some time reading them and get familiar with these guidelines. So we'll start with some epidemiology. Uh, testis cancer is the uh, most common solid malignancy in young men, uh, usually 20 to 40 years of age. 6% of cases occur in children and teenagers. Um, 8% occur in men over the age of 55. American Cancer Society is, uh, estimates that uh, for 2020, United States, uh, there will be about 96, uh, 9,600 new cases and about 440 deaths. And uh, the incidence of developing testis cancer is about one out of 250 male will get it throughout their lifetime. So just there's some epidemiology that uh, you should know. Risk factors on the center testicle, uh, four to six times in, uh, increases your chance of getting testis cancer. And when you have, or, um, or someone undergoes orchiopraxy, the, in, uh, the the risk factor is still there, but it basically drops by 50%. Um, if you have a uh, personal history, for example, 12-fold, incre- 12-fold increased risk of developing germ cell tumor in the contralateral testis. So if you have a testis cancer, then you are typically at a higher risk of developing it in the contralateral compared to average population. Family history, there are some reports that HIV infection, especially those with AIDS, they de- uh, these patients develop testis tumor. Of course, carcinoma in situ, and then um, 
has is known that Caucasians are more at risk compared to um, African American or Asians. There's a report on um, body size. I mean, I have I cannot um, validate this. I don't I don't think there's really a correlation, but it has been listed, uh, especially if you go to American Cancer Society website, it is reported there. There's no way to prevent it. Um, the WHO 2016 classification for post-pubertal germ cell tumor. Um, germ cell tumors are broadly classified as either germ cell derived tumor or non-germ cell derived tumor, okay? So uh, compared to non-seminomas, uh, pure seminomas tend to develop at a later, later age uh, or of a lower stage at diagnosis and grow at a slower rate. Uh, the risk of occult disease for stage one disease is lower for seminoma compared to non-seminoma. So overall it's a better, uh, it has better prognosis. And lastly, keep in mind that pure seminomas are even more highly uh, sensitive to chemo relative to non-seminoma and uh, sensitive to radiotherapy, which is uh, not the case for non-seminoma. Staging, um, prognosis and initial management decisions are, dedic uh, are basically dictated by the clinical stage. And you do that by getting a, doing an orchiectomy pathology and then you have the post-orchiectomy markers and imaging. So that's how you stage. I think the most of the challenge to remember uh, staging of a testis cancer comes here. Like, I mean, it's a little bit more in, uh, involved compared to other GU cancers that we see. Um, to try to simplify it, I mean, obviously TX, T0, TIS is easy to remember. T1 as the testis tumor is, uh, is confined within the testis, but there's no lymphovascular invasion. So you remember that. If you see lymphovascular invasion, you're already going to T2. So no lymphovascular invasion. And then remember uh, three centimeter cutoff. If the tumor is a smaller than three centimeter, it's T1A. And if it goes more than three centimeter, then you have a T1B. Again, if you have lymphovascular invasion, you're already looking at T2 and involvement of the tunical albuginia, okay? T3 when, is when the tumor gets into spermatic cord above the testis, and then T4 is when the testis tumor is invading the scrotum. I have personally not seen it, uh, but obviously it's there, and uh, it's uh, for uh, basically getting to um, a different uh, prognosis there. Uh, nodal staging, uh, remember the two centimeter and then five centimeter. So if it's a uh, two centimeter lymph node in retroperitoneum or smaller, you're looking at N1. N3 is more than five centimeter and N2 is between those two. So anything between two and five centimeter, you're looking at N2. For metastasis, um, M1A, is involvement of non-retroperitoneal lymph nodes, such as pelvic lymph nodes or inguinal lymph nodes and pulmonary metastasis. Anything outside of that, excuse me, um, if you have mets to the non-pulmonary visceral uh, mets, such as liver, which is most commonly seen or other sites, then you're looking at M1B. For the S, for the markers, um, this is, uh, again, not too hard to remember. Just remember um, the um, one and a half time or less for LDH and less than 5,000 
for ACG and AFP less than 1,000. And if it goes over 50,000 for better ACG and more than AFP, or more than 10,000, then you're looking at S3. So uh, anything between would be S2. So lymph nodes, two centimeter and five centimeter. Remember that for N, uh, N1 and N3, anything between is N2. For metastasis, if you have pulmonary mats and uh, non-retropeneal lymph nodes, you're looking at M1A. Anything other than that, anything else would be M1B. And the markers, just remember those uh, numbers, 5,000, 50,000, 1,000, and 10,000. And uh, that will put you, uh, that will basically uh, make it easier for you to come up with the S, uh, S uh, uh, designation. So AJCC prognostic uh, stage group. Um, so remember uh, stage one is confined to the testes. There's no lymph node involvement. When you have lymph nodes, you are looking at clinical stage two. And when you start to see METs, you're looking at stage three. So now that I went through some background, uh, we're gonna go over the guideline statements that uh, uh, have been issued. These guidelines are important, again, to know, to memorize, again, for your in-service and uh, for your uh, oral boards, okay? So uh, a solid mass, statement one, uh, a solid mass in uh, testis identified by exam or imaging should be managed as malignant neoplasm until proven otherwise. It's a clinical principle. In a man with a solid mass in a testis suspicious for malignant neoplasm, tumor markers such as AFP, ACG, and LDA should be drawn and measured prior to any treatment, including orchiectomy. Remember, seminomas do not produce AFP. Elevated AFP and rising AFP in a patient with quote-unquote pure seminoma, it's not seminoma. Uh, I remember this was my oral board question. If... Um, you have a pathology or checking specimen that uh, comes back as seminoma and you had an elevated AFP, you just need to call your pathologist and say, look at the specimen again. I mean, that's, uh, it just doesn't, uh, it just, you cannot see AFP with uh, seminomas. Prior to any definitive management, patients should be counseled about the risk of hypogonadism, which I will go through the numbers later on, and infertility, and should be offered sperm banking when appropriate. In patients without a normal contralateral testis or with known subfertility, this should be considered prior to orchiectomy. Not necessarily these patients need to do a sperm banking um, prior to orchiectomy. It's usually um, uh, preserved for when um, you want to uh, put them through chemo or radiation. So, but again, if you have a contralateral testis that is atrophied, then you need to. Uh, uh, do uh, sperm, uh, offer sperm banking to these patients. Up to 50% of men have impaired semen parameters and 10% are azospermic. At the time of diagnosis, you will see that. I've had patients that um, prior to orchiectomy or right, right after orchiectomy, we did sperm banking and they had one or two viable uh, uh, sperms only. So you do see that. Following chemotherapy, all patients will become azospermic with recovery of spermatogenic function in 50% and 80% within two and five years, respectively. In regards to radiation, uh, it's a re uh, return to pre-irradiation sperm concentration may take nine to 18 months um, with one gray. It's basically radiation dose dependent. 
It can take up to 30 months if you uh, do two to three gray radiation and maybe uh, more than five years when you're delivering more than four gray of radiation. So uh, there are, if you do more than four gray, there is a possibility that the, the, uh, there's a permanent azospermia in these patients. So score ultrasound with a Doppler should be obtained in patients with unilateral or bilateral scleral mass suspicious for neoplasm. I mean, we all know that. Um, on ultrasound, seminomas tend to look more hypoechoic and homogenous. Non-seminoma are more heterogeneous with irregular margins. You can see some calcification. <coughs> Excuse me. Cystic area and hemorrhage. Uh, and then you can in, uh, burn out tumors are the ones that you have a normal exam. Maybe you see a little bit of calcification on the, um, uh, within the testis. These are uh, in those patients that they present with elevated markers and on the scan they have retropinal lymph nodes, but then the ultrasound is typically normal. So those are basically considered uh, burnout primary tumors. Testicular microlithiasis in the absence of uh, solid mass and risk factors for developing gerstmann tumor does not confer an increased risk of malignant neoplasm. Before this was not the case, they were saying if someone has microlithiasis, you need to get uh, uh, ultrasounds annually, at least follow them, but that's not the case. Meta-analysis shows no risk factors. I mean, meta-analysis shows that this is not a risk factor for developing testis tumor. Patients with normal serial markers and indeterminate findings on exam or ultrasound should undergo repeat imaging in six to eight weeks. MRI should not be used in the initial evaluation and diagnosis of testicular lesions. You do see it uh, sometimes when you get referrals, uh, the referring urologists have done an MRI as well. That's not necessary at all. So orchiectomy, Patient with a testicular lesion suspicious for malignant neoplasm and contralateral testis should have a radical inguinal orchiectomy. Testis sparing is not recommended, which we'll get into uh, in a bit, and transscoral orchiectomy is obviously discouraged. The prosthesis uh, talk, I mean, I, we always have to offer this to patients and we always do, but I can tell you I have never put one in and a lot of patients, um, uh, for some reason, they never come back for it. I mean, they, it's never a concern, at least in my opinion, uh, but um, the guideline expert opinion says that it should be offered, and it makes sense. We should offer it to the patient prior to orchiectomy, so if they need it, we can potentially put one in at the time of uh, orchiectomy. Patients who have undergone a score orchiectomy for malignant neoplasm should be canceled regarding the risk of obviously recurrence and may rarely be considered for adjuvant therapy. This again was not the case. Um, I remember as a resident, I have an in-service question. The answer was basically do adjuvant radiation or excise the uh, scar from the scrotum to minimize the risk of recurrence. Meta-analysis from Johns Hopkins showed that about two, only two and a half percent of these patients have recurrence and 9% have viable germ cell tumor after excision. So we don't really um, need to do that. We just have to follow them. If um, there's any concern at later on, it can be excised or radiated. So um, keep that in mind. But again, you, obviously, trans or is not recommended. 
In regards to testis sparing surgery, um, it's again done through the inguinal incision. It may be offered as an alternative to radical inguinal orchiectomy in highly selected patients who are wishing to preserve gonadal function. If they want to, if you're thinking about doing testis sparing surgery, I mean, you got to tell the patient that there's a obviously high risk of recurrence. They need to get serial exams and ultrasounds. The, you need to discuss potential need for going back to complete the orchiectomy or do a radiation. And at the same time, they need to know if you end up doing a radiation, then you are, you're going to be affecting the spermatogenesis and testosterone production anyways. And obviously, there's a risk of testicular atrophy when you manipulate and resect part of the testicle. And uh, again, that will cause infertility and subfertility. When uh, testis sparing surgery is performed, in addition to the suspicious mass, multiple biopsies of the ipsilateral testicle of the normal parenchyma should be obtained for evaluation by experienced genital urinary pathologist. Um, last week, I had a 29-year-old patient with, uh, who was referred to me for um, uh, orchiectomy. He had a complex cystic lesion in the lower aspect of the testicle, uh, consistent with uh, neoplasm. And um, it was 1.8 centimeter. Um, we ended up, uh, the day before, um, I visualized my G pathologist around. We delivered a testicle through angle incision and uh, it opened the tunical albuginia, the mass was resected, we sent it to the pathologist, it was uh, reported as a uh, benign uh, cystic lesion, and we delivered a testicle, did an orchopexy. Again, it is, uh, in a few select cases, uh, it is doable, and it, we can offer that to select patients, and uh, in the next slide, I'll go through some data as well. In patients with malignant neoplasm after testis sparing surgery, clinicians should inform patients of the risk and benefit of surveillance, radiation, orchiectomy, which we already talked about. If you end up doing a radiotherapy, you want to do two gray for nine to 10 daily sessions, 12 of 20 gray radiation should uh, do the job. And also if the um, clinician should inform the patients with the history of germ cell tumor, again, the risk of second primary tumor in the contralateral testis and lifetime risk about 2%. Um, testis sparing surgery is uh, uh, considered when we think that uh, it's going to be a benign uh, uh, testis tumor. These are usually less than two centimeters in size. That's uh, just last month in the White Journal, there was a, a multi-center study out of Italy looking at testis sparing surgery. And uh, among 147 patients who had normal testis marker with a solitary lesion of less than two centimeters in size, Neoplasm was only reported by 14%. So in select patients, again, it's, uh, uh, this is a, a viable option. When it comes down to uh, staging, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, it's orchiectomy, and then you do markers, and then you do uh, imaging. In regards to markers, uh, nadir serial mark tumor markers should be repeated at appropriate half-life intervals after orchiectomy for staging and risk stratification. Um, AFP is a protein secreted by fetal yolk sac and also liver and GI tract. Half-life is about five to seven days. And uh, for HCG is a glycoprotein that is produced by placenta 
to maintain corpus luteum during pregnacy. So ACG can be elevated number of other malignancies such as uh, I guess the liver and you can see in lung cancer and pancreatic cancer. Um, in germ cell tumors of the testes, including both uh, seminomas and non-seminomas, the cancer cells can transform into syncytiotrophoblast and that secretes the ACG. The half-life for is about uh, for half-life for is about 24 to 36 hours, and levels of ACG more than 5,000 or S2 um, are usually indicative of a non-seminoma, and higher levels of ACG are associated with uh, worse prognosis. Um, keep in mind, you will see in about 15% of seminomas elevated ACG, and uh, and uh, it has the same prognosis. Um, um, as seminomas uh, that does not uh, produce ACG. And then lastly, LDH is a cellular enzyme found in every tissue in the body and is expressed on chromosome 12P, if you really have to know that. I don't know if they will ask you that question, but the half-life for that is about 24 hours. For patients with elevated AFP and ACG post-orchiectomy, again, you should monitor the serum tumor markers with appropriate half-life to give it enough time for them to nadir or normalize before you pull the trigger on the treatment. So for patients with metastatic germ cell tumor, <laughs> mostly stage 2C or 3, requiring chemotherapy, clinicians must base chemotherapy regimen and number of cycles on uh, international germ cell cancer collaborative group risk stratification. The chemotherapy regimen usually is a BEP, bleomycin, etoposide, or cisplatin, or etoposide, or cisplatin. For good prognosis, non-seminomas, um, uh, you do EP times four or BEP times three. It's basically dealer's choice. There's uh, really no data that supports which one uh, is uh, superior over the other one. Uh, but you got to keep in mind if there's a patient with... Uh, restrictive lung disease or <laughs> history of asthma, you want to avoid giving bleomycin. In, in, uh, in uh, intermediate or poor risk factors, again, BEP times four is given, and then, or you can give EP and IFO. And keep in mind, in seminomas, there is no, there is no poor risk uh, prognosis. So, um, for uh, patients in whom serum tumor markers uh, levels are borderline, elevated post-orchiectomy, uh, again, the trend should be confirmed before management decisions are made as false positive elevations may occur. So next uh, thing in the appropriate staging would be imaging. In patients with newly diagnosed germ cell tumor, you should obtain a CT of abdomen pelvis with contrast. Um, there's no need for MRI unless CT is uh, contraindicated. Uh, maybe a patient is allergic to iodine contrast or uh, they have a poor renal function that they can't uh, handle the contrast given by uh, CT. Then you do an MRI. Otherwise, CT has uh, adequate sensitivity and specificity. It's reported that accuracy of the CT for diagnosing retrovenal lymph nodes is about 83%. Um, in the presence of... Um, 
elevated um, and rising post-orchectomy markers or evidence of metastasis on abdominal or pelvic imaging, that's when you pull the trigger to get a CT of the chest. I mean, otherwise it's not indicated. If you don't have any intra-abdominal pathology um, or you know, if you have a chest x-ray that is normal, then there's no need really to get a CT of the chest. Especially in seminomas, um, really, um, again, as I said, uh, if the intra-abdominal uh, abdominal CT is normal, then you can completely omit getting a, a thoracic or chest imaging. There's no role for PET, PET scan at the uh, initial uh, diagnosis of germ cell tumor. They can be done after of uh, you know, patients have gone through chemotherapy for seminomas, but initially there's no role for that. Principles of management. Management decisions should be based on imaging obtained within preceding four weeks and serum tumor markers within preceding 10 days. So this um, basically what it means is like, you know, um, there is a rapid doubling time of many germ cell tumors, particularly non-seminoma germ cell tumors. There's a risk of disease progression between staging studies and intervention. So you don't want to have a, too much of a lag from uh, your last scan and your last tumor markers. Like you, if you're going to do surgery or you want to put a patient through a chemo, you want to do so in a short window. Um, otherwise, uh, if uh, your staging or your treatment could be either um, uh, you're going to be over-treating or under-treating someone. So keep that in mind um, uh, when you uh, uh, treat a patient for testis cancer and uh, they, have a, they had a previous uh, elevated tumor markers. Management decisions should be made in a multidisciplinary setting that involves geo-oncologists, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, pathologists, and radiologists. Um, I put that in because um, there is a, there's a report, um, there are reports that when um, these orchectomy specimens are read uh, again by um, GU pathologists, these uh, um, uh, histology can be changed. I think it was, it was seven, there was a report that 7 8% of the uh, seminomas were converted to non-seminomas and uh, lymphovascular invasion was altered 20% of the time. And you got to keep in mind, again, if there's a presence of lymphovascular invasion, it's not a T1 anymore. You're looking at a T2. So as a result, your treatment paradigm changes. Um, in patients with normal serum tumor markers and equivocal imaging, findings for metastasis, clinician may consider repeat imaging in six to eight weeks to clarify the extent of disease prior to making a treatment recommendation. So again, if you're not sure if you have a lymph node, uh, in the retroperitoneum or if they're enlarging, just give it some time, six to eight weeks, nothing happens, and you can uh, just uh, uh, re-image them and then go from there. Seminomas, um, you should know that uh, surveillance after orchectomy for a patient with stage one uh, seminoma is uh, highly recommended um, for uh, Stage one seminoma surveillance, adjuvant carboplatinum, and adjuvant radiation therapy are all options. More than 80% of the patients will not experience recurrence. Um, surveillance associated with a lower risk of a short-term and long-term treatment-related morbidity, such as secondary malignancies that you can get with uh, radiotherapy or chemotherapy. 
um, adjuvant carbo or radiation reduce the risk of relapse uh, down to three to nine percent from 20%, but you, you got to keep in mind that it does not improve cancer-specific survival compared to surveillance. Basically, your specific survival, um, your cancer-specific survival is still 98%. So if, that means if even you watch these patients, and at some point you see the enlargement of lymph nodes in the retroperitoneum, you can still pull the trigger and do your uh, treatment with chemo or radiation, and you still haven't lost time and you haven't really jeopardized the patient's ultimate outcome. So recommendation is typically surveillance. For patients with stage 2A or 2B seminomas with lymph nodes less than 3 centimeter, clinicians should recommend radiotherapy or multi-agent cisplatinum-based chemotherapy. For stage 2B seminomas with lymph nodes more than 3 centimeter, chemotherapy is recommended. Um, that's basically, um, it's, um, you, you, these are the patients that you, do, you, know, you should not do surveillance because uh, there is uh, most likely um, uh, cancer or uh, neoplasm within retroperitoneum. Radiation therapy and multi-agent chemotherapy both result in good results, more than 97% survival. Uh, radiotherapy, you do a, a dog leg field up to 30 gray, and chemo is either, uh, as I said, three cycles of VEP or four cycles of EP. Again, surveillance is not recommended here. For stage 2B seminomas, there are fewer relapses after chemotherapy compared to radiotherapy, and the RPLD should not be considered in the management of patients with stage 2 seminomas unless it's part of the clinical trial. So there's no role for um, RPLD here. Non-seminomas, uh, clinicians should recommend uh, risk-appropriate multi-agent chemotherapy for patients with non-seminoma with elevated and rising post-orchiectomy post serum markers. The study was, uh, is a multi-variable uh, regression analysis of 453 uh, patients uh, who underwent uh, primary RPLD and memorial Sloan catering with non-seminoma germ cell tumors. Um, they reported that elevated markers at the time of RPLND were associated with a substantially elevated risk of relapse with a hazard ratio of uh, 5.6. Um, clinicians uh, should recommend surveillance for patients with stage 1A non-seminoma RPLND or one cycle, cycles of, one cycle of BEP are effective and appropriate alternative treatment options for patients who decline surveillance or are at risk of non-compliance. Again, when, with any disease, when we do surveillance or active surveillance, patient's compliance is the key. So if you, there's a patient that um, you think they're not gonna follow up, um, uh, these guys are the one that they should go through um, prophylactic, I guess, uh, uh, chemo or even um, RPLND or even radiation. The relapse rate for patients with clinical stage one non-seminoma is uh, 10 to 20%, meaning that 80 to 90% of these patients are just cured basically with the orchiectomy. Lymphovascular invasion, invasion and a presence of embryonal carcinoma in the orchiectomy specimen are the independent risk factors for relapse. Keep that in mind. And of course, shared decision-making is appropriate, so the clinical decision is attuned to the patient's priorities, values, and medical history. Um, 
this is a Danish study of surveillance of stage one non-seminoma germ cell tumors of 513 men with stage 1A non-seminoma. They reported that 15-year disease-specific survival was 99.1%. The five-year relapse rate of men with stage 1 disease was 24.6%. Stage 1B, um, non-seminoma germ cell tumor, clinicians should recommend surveillance, RPLND, or one or two cycles of BEP. These are all uh, equally good. Uh, risk of relapse is roughly about 45 to 50%. It's the same Danish study that I spoke to you about. I just uh, mentioned in the previous slide, uh, the relapse rate on surveillance was 43% with presence of lymphovascular invasion. Um, there was a uh, series from Toronto and British Columbia and Oregon uh, that, again, uh, their uh, relapse rate was very similar, about uh, 54%. Um, when you have uh, lymphovascular invasion and, again, embryonal carcinomas, these are the uh, risk factors for relapse, and those are the ones that you want to be a little bit more aggressive. RPLND, or one cycle of BEP chemo, will reduce the risk of relapse. And uh, it's important, uh, uh, again, as I said, shared decision-making is important to make sure that you are consistent with the patient's value and priorities. Uh, and also uh, patient's uh, medical and surgical history may influence the appropriateness of the uh, certain options. For example, if the patient has had prior inguinal surgery for hernia or whatever, uh, this alters the lymphatic drainage and if you want to do RPLND, it's not going to be as effective. So these are the ones that you want to put through um, chemotherapy. On the other hand, if the patient has a poor renal function, then you know there are increased risk of uh, complications if you do chemotherapy, and those are the ones that perhaps uh, RPLND um, uh, will serve them better. Patient with stage one non-seminoma germ cell tumor. Um, and uh, any secondary somatic malignancy, also known as teratoma, uh, in the primary tumor at orchiectomy should undergo RPLND. Teratomas um, have the capacity to de differentiate into somatic malignancies and into sarcomas and carcinomas that are less responsive to chemotherapy. And these are the ones that they should primarily have RPLND again. A study, a very limited series of 10 uh, from Memorial, uh, uh, showed that patients who received chemo, seven out of 10 died. And also from Europe, um, nine out of 10 patients died if they primarily had only chemotherapy with median overall survival of 28 months. Again, these are the ones that you want to do RPLND on. Clinicians should recommend RPLND or chemo for patients with stage 2A non-seminoma with normal post-orchectomy markers, S0. Uh, they have an excellent prognosis with RPLND or chemo. There is no... Um, uh, there's no data to support which one's better over the other one. Um, and uh, if you do RPLND, most men remain to uh, have stage 2A. The relapse rate without any adjuvant chemo is 10% only. And again, if these guys relapse, you can always do the chemotherapy in future. 23 to 40% will become uh, pathologic stage 1, meaning that they're no nodal disease and they were overstaged. Some very uh, small number of these patients will be upstaged to, two, uh, to a stage 2B, and they need adjuvant chemo as relapse rate will become 1% with chemo 
compared to 50% if they don't receive chemotherapy. Chemotherapy, 90% relapse-free survival. Again, you got to keep in mind there are uh, side effects with chemo, infertility. They can have hearing loss, cardiovascular disease, long-term toxicities are associated with chemo. And as a surgeon, I think uh, these patients will probably just do better with primary RPL and D. And again, keep in mind if that prior inguinal surgery, you do not want to offer them chemotherapy because uh, you, you want to offer them chemotherapy. The surgery is not the best option here because the lymphatic drainage has been changed. In patients with clinical stage 2B non-seminomas and uh, normal post-orchiectomy markers, clinicians should recommend risk-appropriate multi-agent chemotherapy, or they may offer RPLD as an alternative to chemotherapy to select patients with clinical stage 2B non-seminoma with normal post-orchiectomy serum markers. Asymptomatic men with unifocal or and small uh, lymph nodes such as less than three centimeters in size, again, RPLD may do well for them. Again, these are select patients, and uh, not everyone should go through RPLND. Um, this is a study um, that uh, it was uh, uh, from. Uh, it's a, a relatively old study. It's a multi-study, uh, multi-center study of uh, adjuvant chemotherapy for pathologic stage two disease. Over half of men with PN2 disease relapsed if they did not receive uh, adjuvant chemotherapy, and you see the big separation of the cur uh, curves here. So if they have a stage two, they do need to get uh, post-chemo RPLND, otherwise they will relapse. Among men, uh, among patients who are candidate for RPLND, it is recommended to consider referring these patients to high-volume high, -volume, high uh, centers with uh, exper experienced surgeons. This, uh, there was a study in Gold Journal, um, I think it was out of uh, Vanderbilt, I want to say, and on average, uh, during residency, patient, uh, residents get to assist or see about four RPLNDs only, and 50% of graduates get to do about two RPLND or less during their training. Um, according to a National Cancer Database study, the uh, median number of um, uh, annual tes testicular cancer cases per hospital was only three. And for patients with metastatic disease, treatment at the high volume uh, hospitals is independently has been shown to be associated with better survival, overall survival. And as you see here, the red uh, curve uh, is basically showing the uh, hospitals with a lower, lower volume compared to the black line, which is a high volume centers. And you can see the big separation between these uh, correlating um, the high volume surgeon and the hospital uh, with a better survival. Uh, quickly, minimal invasive surgery in testis cancer. Um, it should be done by an uh, experienced surgeon. Um, there is uh, the role of minimal invasive surgery or robotic surgery um, in, uh, for art penalty is controversial. There are some retrospective studies uh, on multi-center studies that are uh, uh, more recently coming out. But again, these are very select cases. Uh, some of these testes uh, tumors are wrapped around the IBC or aorta. They need major um, IBC grafts and reconstruction surgeries, and those are not being done uh, robotically. And uh, um, so these are the what you see in this, uh, literature right now. You got to keep in mind those are select cases. But again, RPLND does have a role for um, uh, management of uh, testis cancer. Robotic RPLND 
And I just put these two uh, most recent uh, robotic RPNDs that we've done. You are able to clean the intraerotic cable, power cable, paraerotic lymph nodes. And on the right side, you can see the preservation of uh, sympathetic fibers. And this is a patient, they were both post-chemo. Um, on the right, this patient had about eight centimeter paraerotic uh, uh, mass that ended up being a enterotoma. So um, for primary RPLND, um, you, you got to know your boundaries. Uh, the cephalat um, uh, uh, boundary would be the renal hyalur vessels all the way down to where the ureters are crossing, crossing the iliacs inferiorly. Uh, these, uh, the principles uh, should apply to both open or laparoscopic or robotic. And you have to clean all the lymph nodes. You got to clip all the lumbars and, and take them out. And you have to be able to roll the IVC and the aorta back and forth to make sure you clean everything. If you're not able to do this robotically or laparoscopically, it has to be done uh, with an expert uh, who, uh, uh, who is, uh, specializes in these, either open or robotic. Again, full bilateral template, uh, lymphadenectomy should be performed. Uh, I'm gonna go through this quickly for the sake of time. Um, you can offer modified templates of, um, in a clinically uh, in uh, patients with a negative lymph nodes, which I will go through in the next slide. Um, Right-sided templates, uh, you may omit paraerotic lymph nodes, blow the inferior mesenteric artery, uh, avoiding a dissection above uh, paraerotic lymph nodes, uh, above the inferior mesenteric artery is controversial. Uh, on the left side, you can omit a paracable or retrocable or precable lymph nodes. And um, um, again, if you're in a dissection, if you have suspicious lymph nodes that you see, then you got to convert to full bilateral template dissection. After primary RPLND, clinicians should recommend surveillance or adjuvant chemo in patients with non-seminoma germ cell tumor who have pathologic stage two disease that is not pure teratoma. A study from um, Williams and colleagues in 1987. Again, these are the studies that we keep referring to because uh, they're landmark studies and they set the ground rules for uh, the way we treat these patients with uh, testis cancer. Um, adjuvant chemo versus observation uh, for pathologic stage two disease showed that significant reduction in relapse and no difference in overall survival. For patients with N1 and uh, pathologic N1 to N3, pure, pure teratoma surveillance is preferred. And for patients with N2, N3, multi-agent cisplatinomase chemotherapy is preferred as the recurrence rate were lower from 50% to 6% with chemotherapy. Surveillance for stage one, um, the safety of surveillance for stage one seminoma is well, well established. I mean, the disease-specific survival is 100%. Uh, relapse is mostly identified by CT and seromarker. So when you follow these patients, if they're going to relapse, you will see them on the tumor marker mostly and CAT scans. And if they're going to have a relapse, the median, um, uh, it, it's, it happens median time of uh, 14 months with 92% identified during the first three years of surveillance. So if you clear the first three years, most likely these patients will not have recurrence. Relapse rates range from 13 to 19 months which is curable with salvage therapy regardless. There's a surveillance uh, schedule uh, right out of the NCCN. 
um, for uh, after orchiectomy for seminomas. Uh, you see them every three to six months in the first year for examination and tumor markers, and you get imaging at three months, six months, and 12 months. Second year, you do uh, exam and imaging every six months, and the same thing with the third year, and then annually after that. And you can probably stop after fifth year. For non-seminomal, Relapse uh, uh, is seen in 19% with median time to relapse in four to eight months, so a little bit uh, faster than uh, uh, faster than seminoma. More than 95% of patients on surveillance will experience a recurrence, and will do uh, and will do so during the first two years. So again, you want to keep a close eye on these patients for the first five years, and if they relapse, you can proceed with treatment. If they have lymphovascular invasion, obviously their relapse rate. Uh, um, uh, would be much higher than those who don't have relapse, uh, uh, who don't, who do not have lymphovascular invasion or orchiectomy specimen. And again, CT and tumor markers are adequate to uh, monitor these patients. And again, um, this is out of NCCN, uh, the surveillance schedule, uh, active surveillance after orchiectomy, a little bit uh, more intense than seminomas, but uh, after basically five years, you can, uh, if they have shown no recurrence, you can dismiss these patients. If they relapse on surveillance, then you restage them again. You get markers, TNM and S status, you get uh, uh, updated the CT imaging, and appropriately you treat them. Rate, uh, rate of re, uh, uh, relapse after five years in patients with stage one germ cell tumor is less than 1%. So after five years, you can dismiss these patients. So some notes on survivorship quickly. Um, patients with germ cell tumor should be monitored for sign and symptoms of hypogonadism. After orchiectomy alone, uh, that's like 10%, okay? Um, this, um, if they're treated with both radiotherapy and chemotherapy, then Hypogonadism is about 35%. Study by Fosa and colleagues in 2007 showed that basically orchiectomy alone increased the risk of hypogonadism by 1.8 times, radiotherapy 3.6 times, and chemotherapy 4.4 times. And if you combine those radiotherapy and chemotherapy, obviously it's much more. Those treated with radiotherapy and chemo should be advised on the elevated risk of cardiovascular disease, um, this is an international study that I just mentioned in the previous slide, uh, reporting the risk of cardiovascular mortality was increased 70% uh, among testis cancer survivors treated with radiotherapy when younger than 35 years, but did not show any increased risk if they were 35 years or older. And this was increased to 44% for survivors who had been treated with chemo regardless of age at the time of treatment. Cardiovascular mortality was also doubled among those, again, who were treated with radiotherapy and chemotherapy. Um, patient with a history of germ cell tumor uh, who were treated uh, has also, um, they need to be closely followed by the primary care doctor. Uh, There's a development of second, risk of getting a second cancer um, it's a high in some of these patients. There's a study, a multi-center study from on 40,000 patients with testis cancer who were treated. Uh, basically, relative risk of secondary malignancy after radiotherapy 
in long term is about two times with 95 uh, with a confidence interval of uh, 1.9 to 2.2, and after chemotherapy was almost uh, about the same uh, relative risk of 1.8. Again, these patients need to be followed by the primary care doctor uh, long term as these guys have a higher risk of getting uh, secondary malignancies. Lastly, future directions. I mean, there are uh, exciting uh, research happening right now in uh, testis cancer, especially these circulating tumor markers. Um, these uh, tumor markers are currently, um, there are a couple of trials are, are running. Um, they are uh, basically, um, I know you had a talk recently that they went over uh, through these, uh, they went over these markers. These guys, uh, uh, at some point, uh, they're gonna be driving the show here. Um, Specifically, I think the last one, uh, MIR37, this, this tumor marker is not elevated in patients with teratomal. And um, I think um, um, over the next uh, two, three years, uh, they'll uh, hopefully become a, a routine uh, in, uh, in institutions which treat these patients with uh, testis cancer. Um, there were a lot of information there. Again, I. Uh, I don't think um, um, there is any easy way of uh, learning testis cancer. I think it's repetition. I think the uh, guidelines, they have some points for you guys to just go through and learn. Um, it's uh, the surveillance, the schedule, I think it's uh, good for you guys to have on your iPhones or your tablets. Basically, if you're doing surveillance in your clinic, you can just easily refer to. And again, I personally follow these patients with medical oncologists myself. It's a multidisciplinary approach. And uh, it's, uh, um, it's definitely needed for uh, these patients to be followed very closely, regardless of uh, if they're on surveillance or they have had uh, treatment, uh, treatments for chemo or radiation. If you have any questions or if you need these slides to be emailed to you, uh, please feel free to email me. And uh, thank you for uh, inviting me to give this talk. Yeah, no, thank you so much. Um, that was such an amazing review. Uh, it's gonna be very high yield um, for any residents studying for the in-service, fellows for their boards. So thank you very much. We do have some questions. Um, if you don't mind, we'll try to get as many in um, before our next talk. Sure. Um, one question I had, you had, um, you had discussed one of your patients, The uh, I think he was a 29 year old, um, 1.8. Yes. Um, I wanted to see you know, what scenarios, do you, like what other scenarios do you consider testes, biopsies, partial, like testes sparing surgery? Uh, well, very rarely. I mean, and very rarely. This is like, uh, I mean, I end up doing this maybe like once or twice a year max. I mean, first of all, like most of the testes tumors that you see, it will be radical inguinorchectomy. This was uh, specifically, this patient had a complex cystic lesion at the lower aspect of a testicle, very, um, this patient was not happy about, you know, just losing a testicle. And I just had a feeling that this is not a testis tumor. Mm -hmm. So um, again, if a patient is very resistant and you feel like, you know, doing an orchiectomy is going to psychologically really affect them and you have enough reason to give it a chance and it's less than two centimeter based on, you know, what we've seen in the literature, it is reasonable to try. Again, it has to be done appropriately. You got to have a good geopathologist. And uh, you gotta have the patient, regardless, mentally ready that you might end up doing your uh, inguinal or radical orchiectomy. Sure. Um, but and you gotta, and you can't forget about you know doing uh, biopsies around the normal uh, tubules uh, when you're doing a, a, a testis sparing surgery to make sure there's no other cancer cells. Mm -hmm. Okay.
Um, uh, Ethan Fram uh, had a question. Uh, yes. He was asking in regards to uh, one of the studies that you showed, what's the role of checking LDH post-orchiectomy? It seems like a lot of the studies just focused on AFP um, and beta It's non-specific. I mean, I think it just, uh, historically, we use it just to see if there's any bulky disease in the retroperitoneum. Uh, routinely, we send all three of them, but uh, most of our treatment um, is driven by AFP and HCG. But um, um, we send it just to have a kind of a, as a group, just to have an idea of what's going on in, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, bulkiness of a disease. But if there's no, if there's no retroperitoneal lipadenopathy on the scan, that LDH is going to be normal. Sure. And I always find this interesting, um, you know, with the United States Preventive Service Task Force recommendation of uh, kind of the grade D of um, testicular self-exams. How do you as a clinician kind of counsel your patients with regards to self-examination? Um, and how do you feel about that, uh, that proposed guideline? Well, I mean, you know, self-testicular examination, I mean, every... Unfortunately, um, it's one of the pains in uh, uro-oncology practice. I guess we get a lot of these uh, testicular pains. A lot of the referring doctors think that, you know, if a patient has a testicular pain, send them to a urologist, it's a testis cancer. So you get to see a lot of these patients, unfortunately. And it's very frustrating for the patient and the physician because they come to see you, they want something to be done, and there's really nothing to do. And I always counsel them at least do a testicular exam before I dismiss them. And I tell them to just do self-testicular exam. If you feel anything different, you call me, you come back. I do think it's easy to do and it should be um, basically recommended. I mean, I don't think uh, it should be dismissed. And it's a very important part of the you know, screening for young men for, uh, to make sure that if you have testis cancer, you can get them at an early stage. Well, um, in the sake of time, just uh, thank you so much again, Dr. Meherzin, uh, for... Man, you look good. Thank you. I, I hope I didn't take your time. And uh... no, no, This was amazing. Um, it's going to be a great resource for us. I'm telling you, when we study for those boards, um, yes. uh, fellows too, uh, in service. But thank you again. Um, 